I'll be reading Psalm 15. Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives honestly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost, who does not lend his money at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be moved. That's the word of the Lord. All right. So my name is Pip. I know pretty much everybody here. So we're going to be looking at Exodus 3. Exodus 3. So if you open your Bible, there's a Bible right in front of you. If you're in one of the pews, if you don't have one. Um, yeah, we'll get into it. Uh, so, we ended Genesis. Uh, we ended last week. Um, and the book of Genesis, as you recall, um, starts, with, starts with this beautiful world, a world God called very good. Beautiful creation, new life, just this, this sense of fecundity, of growth, new life. And it ends with a coffin in Egypt. Joseph being placed in a coffin in Egypt, right? Uh, and you know what? Before, before we really kind of dig, dig right into this, I will give you kind of an overview of, of, of uh, just Exodus. But I want to... I want you to keep that in mind. It ends with this coffin, and I think, uh, and last week we kind of talked about this dichotomy, right, between life and promise and death. Sin leads to death. Death comes from sin, right? So we've seen in a sense, I think you almost think it's like, oh, there's a sense of, fine, of the end of Genesis is like, okay, there's these promises, there's these promises made to Abraham, to the patriarchs, and there's this promise of life, this sense of expectation, this sense of hope for the undoing of all that sin has done and what the serpent, like the kind of the chaos, the evil, the serpent has brought into the world. But, but, we have this promise, but it's still ended with death. So there's a, there's a question. I think there's a sense of like, okay, this is not, here, here's where we're going, but we're not there yet. This is not as it should be. Uh, and now the word, ex, uh, the title Exodus is actually taken from the Greek for Exeter departure. Uh, the Hebrew name for the book is, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this, so my apologies. Uh, but Wele Shemoth. And that's actually from the opening lines of, of the book. These are the names. Um, and so Genesis, the book of Genesis in Hebrew, comes from the opening line in the beginning. And Genesis is the Greek version of that. And same with Exodus. Exodus is the Greek version of that kind of opening. These are the names, right? Or actually, it's for, from exit departure, I'm sorry. Um, so I think something that when we look at the Bible from a literary perspective, so that doesn't mean a literary perspective meaning like, oh, it's not real, it's just, it's just literature, aka like fake. That's, that's not what I mean by that. Uh, a nonfiction novel, a nonfiction story can be literary and have, has like literary dynamic. Poems are literary, just an account you, you, can, you, you have written down. There's a literary aspect to that of literature. Doesn't mean it's fictional, but it does mean there's like, okay, there's an element of storytelling here in the sense of how the story is told. Totally true story, but how it's told. So I think it's interesting that in some novels, uh, you can think of like, what should a novel be? And there's one straight ahead version, you think of like a classic American novel, right? Of, of how it should be, and there's like an expectation for the characters and the plot. But there's a lot, there's a, actually a very broad variety of um, literary forms that a book, even novels, can take. You think of novels where all of a sudden the novel stops and there's like, a list is actually given in it, and then it resumes with a novel, or novels where, like, the different kind of plots or chunks of it take on kind of like what we would say are experimental forms, but I would just actually say there's different forms that the uh, literary structures can take. And in order to, like, kind of read literature broadly, and in order to kind of open our minds to world literature, uh, experimental literature, just like all the varieties of artistic um, artistic variation that can be on like what we think of as a singular story, as a, as a novel or whatever, you have to get your head around that it may be different than what you expect. 
And I would say that's, there's, that can be applied even to looking at Exodus. Like, it, uh, we have, it's an epic about God's relationship with Israel, um, him saving his people from Egypt and his formation of them as a people. And then there's actually passages where it's talking about laws and the tabernacle, like, like the, um, the way that worship is to happen. And then it'll actually resume with like storytelling passages, more narrative passages. And in a, if we're just stuck in a modern, very narrow contemporary mindset, we can be like, wait, why is this book? It's like, I don't understand. It's all over the place. It's going in all these, it's doing this. You're not supposed to do that. But we actually should come to the text, as we should come to, to any text, I think, with a certain level of humility, be like, what is the author actually trying to do? And look at it through that lens. What is the author trying to do? Rather than look at it through the lens of, here's my set of expectations. And you kind of lean back, fulfill them, you know? It's like when you go to a movie, and uh, yeah, if you go to a movie expecting like it's a big action movie, you kind of know what to expect. But there's a lot more kinds of movies than just an action movie, right? If you go to an art house film expecting it to be a, just like a Mission Impossible, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But perhaps, perhaps if you open your mind, you'll find that there are more varieties of filmmaking than merely a Mission Impossible. And so I think here, as we're like looking at this, I think there's a beauty into, in approaching the text with humility, both formally for how we're going to see it play out, and also even just like content-wise, humility, right? So the main focal point of this is God's relationship with human beings, specifically Israel. And the main uh, human being we have here, the leader of Israel, is going to be Moses, right? Um, and actually, uh, Christian... Uh, uh, Jewish and, and Christian history, historians, like just tradition, views th this book along with the first, the entirety of the first five books of the Bible, uh, which is called the Pentateuch or the Torah, to be actually written by, at least in part, by Moses. There's multiple times where it's, it's referred to both in the Old and New Testament, including Jesus' own words, where he speaks to like the writing, like the fact that this comes from Moses, right? That may not be that every single line, right, was written by Moses because there's like a portion, uh, for instance, that has an account of Moses' death, and it seems fair to think, okay, maybe that was written by Joshua or Eleazar, who's a priest. Um, but in any case, uh, mosaic authorship is the traditional take of that, just like Joshua was talking about when we were cracking open Genesis, and uh, that would continue here with Exodus. So, um, I think also uh, we'll find as we're going through Exodus. There are certain passages where there's like, there's plenty of passages, I would say the majority, it's fairly clear what's happening, but there's certain passages we'll come across and be like, uh, I don't understand what's, what's happening here. It almost feels like information isn't fully, it's perhaps like not all the information we would hope for is given out, like maybe there's actually withholding of information there in a sense. And I actually think that, that those are opportunities where we could read it and just be like, ah, they didn't tell me what I need to, what I need to know, this doesn't make sense. But I actually think those are opportunities for us to pause and look at the text with humility. And perhaps even that's, I, I think that may even be, they may even be in there on purpose to make us stop and like think about it and ponder it and kind of like let it roll around in our minds. So there's also just different literary forms. So if we come across things that feel conf you feel confused or this isn't what I expected or they're withholding information, pause and think, oh, maybe this is actually an intentional move. Maybe, maybe not everything's being spelled out for us because... Uh, not because there's withholding of information like, a, ah, just like to mess with people, but rather to give us an opportunity to think about it, to have humility, to ponder it. Um, so we talked about uh, Genesis starting with life, a world that was very good, ending with a coffin. And now we're going to start right here uh, with a sense of life, a sense of like the life of Abraham's line, a sense of fecundity, this, this like fertility that's happening. Um, as well as a sense of resistance. And I think it's good, even as we're, we're looking at this, I'm, I was reminded of 2 Timothy 3, there's a line that says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go, will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And as we are out of Eden, and we've seen the, the patriarchs, we've seen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's people, we've seen persecution, both within God's people, like, God's people sinning, like, you know, just like, hey, let's go kill Joseph, that kind of thing. And also persecution from without. And that's going to continue, and I, it's going to intensify here in what we're about to read. So there's that. And also one more thing I just want to give you as we're going into this is think about, uh, think about Genesis, uh, what happened right at the start of the fall, right? Where um, Adam and Eve have sinned, and then God... Uh, talks with them, deals out, deal, uh, lays out the consequences of their sin, 
And then there's Genesis 3.15, which, uh, as you may recall, many people, have, people call it like the proto-evangelion, which is almost like the first good news. Um, and it said, God says, I will put, he's speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's a sense within that of like there's this conflict between the serpent and, and man and which commentators will see that. People like theologians through the ages have seen within that there's a sense of messianic expectation of somebody arising who will bruise the head of the, crush the head of the serpent, right? But in the process will be bruised, will be wounded, okay? So, and then just throughout Genesis we have this sense of longing for something. Something's going to happen. And there's a series of redeemers we see. Noah, redeeming the world, like Josh was talking about this morning, redeeming the world um, in the sense of carrying humanity literally inside this ark at God's behest. Abraham, Joseph being raised up through a process of great suffering in order to save, uh, save the people, God's people from uh, famine. Uh, and that's going to continue here with, with Moses. All these, these rede redemptive figures, redeemers, but all of them are flawed at the same time. And they're looking forward to the ultimate redeemer, Jesus, right? So, we have that. Now, we'll hop right in right here. Uh, verse 1, Exodus 1.1. 1, 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his, own, with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of, descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. And even, I think, looking at that language, right, fruitful and increased greatly, they multiplied. Uh, the land was filled with them. My mind goes back to Genesis, right, that the very start of Genesis, when God blesses human beings and tells them to be fruitful and multiply. This is a sense of filling the earth. And here we see within the, the context of Egypt, we see God's people are being fruitful and multiplying, which is especially, especially interesting if you consider just the fact that infertility has been a recurrent theme for Abraham's life, right? In the sense of Abraham, uh, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah not having a kid until God actually, actually blesses them miraculously. And then you also have uh, later you have struggles with infertility. So that's, that's something actually you see coming up at, uh, in the several points in the Bible, um, including into the New Testament with John the Baptist uh, with his parents. But it's interesting that there has been infertility in the past here in God's, God's people in that line, and now that's not a problem apparently. In fact, the land is filled with them. Something, if you, are, if you recall when we were going through Genesis 15, God meets Abraham it's uh, a night, at, at nighttime, and he tells him something about what will happen, specifically what is about to, we're about to delve into, but something unpleasant is going to happen. God tells him he's going to bless him, right? But then he tells him that there's going to be suffering involved. Uh, Genesis 15, 12 through 16 says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a, in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, keep that in mind, just the fact that there is going to be 400 years of persecution, and keep also in mind the iniquity of the Amorites. We're going to kind of circle back to that. Uh, but this is the God who declares the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen before it happens, and he's, de he's declared it. So I don't know, this is just pure speculation, I don't know the degree of awareness that the Israelites had when they were in Egypt, but I wonder if in the back of their minds there was a sense of like, oh, great, we've avoided famine, we're here in, Israel, we're here in Egypt, but this isn't our promised land. The promised land is Canaan. And also a sense of like, oh, there's, remember what he said, to, what the Lord said to Abraham, that there would be, uh, there was going to be uh, suffering, right? There was going to be, we were actually going to be afflicted for 400 years. We're going to be servants. So I don't know what degree of awareness there was as a people, but I assume that was like passed along the line. And so there was some sense when it happened, uh, the suffering that happened, that there was like, oh, that's, that's actually, that was promised, that we're told that was going to happen. So, 
Verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. I'm going to pause right there. New king comes, doesn't know Joseph, and presumably doesn't know, would claim not to know Joseph's God, right? And doesn't remember what Joseph, what he did for them. They, he, remember, Joseph didn't just, God didn't just use Joseph to save the, the Hebrews. He used it to save, actually, uh, Egypt itself. Because they, if, that, if Joseph hadn't been there to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, they would not have saved enough, enough uh, food to be able to handle the famine, and Egypt would have been devastated as well. So this king just does not, does not know, it, know that, it says. Uh, whether that's a willful disregard, just a lack of awareness, you know, maybe it just didn't get passed down. That's one thing you see tragically. Again, again, not just in the Bible, but in, in history itself. People experiencing, experience something, experience a reality, experience goodness, or just find some sort of fundamental truth or wisdom, and they kind of pass it down to their kids. The kids are like, okay, but they haven't necessarily experienced it firsthand, maybe, or in the same way, and they don't really pass it down to the third generation, and eventually that truth actually is forgotten, and then the fourth generation has to learn it the hard way, something like that. Um, uh, so, also a little note on date. Egyptian dates, as I was looking into this, like Egyptology apparently is notoriously hard to p pin down dates because of inaccuracies and contradiction in, in Egyptian records. Also, you have like Egyptian kings, right, who, uh, it, it would, so it would seem from my reading that they're, you know, they're trying to puff up their dynasties, trying to make themselves look good, and there's like an exaggeration or inaccurate numbers. So, Egyptology, it seems like it's kind of no pun intended, maybe a pun intended. It's like shifting sands, right? It's like kind of, kind of moving around a lot. Um, and so it seems hard to determine when people try to say like, this is who this pharaoh was. When they try to figure that out, that seems pretty hard to nail down. But in 1 Kings 6, we're told that uh, the exodus happened, uh, I believe it's 480 years from the fourth year of King Solomon. And so what scholars arrive at at the number would be four, uh, 1446 BC would be when this is when the exodus happened uh, 1446 BC so that's that's interesting to keep that kind of general general number in place um, it seems reliable from what I've, I've read uh, also something I want to point out here is just a, just a quick sidebar, if you and almost be, feel like this is one of those things to put a pin in, just to remember to go back, Matthew 2. In Matthew 2, Jesus is actually, war Jesus' parents, earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, are warned in a dream from the Lord uh, to flee to Egypt because Herod's trying to kill, trying to kill uh, the male children, right? He's trying to vanquish this potential, uh, potential contender for the throne, I guess. Uh, so they depart to Egypt, and then they come out. And it were told that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And it's interesting that what we're going to see here is Israel's also talked about as, as God's son, right? And what we're going to see here is like God calling Israel, his son, out of Egypt. Um, so there's, it's almost like Jesus in a sense, how I view it, is Jesus is recapitulating what we're about to see, this movement out of Egypt, this fleeing to Egypt and this movement out of Egypt. So there's that. Um, so... Also, Pharaoh here, he says, let's deal shrewdly. And that, that phrase, deal shrewdly, people see like, actually some commentators see like a connection with Genesis 3.15. There's like a serpent-like nature to that, deal shrewdly. Let's be, let's be clever and sneaky, deceitful. And here we see that slavery is their way of quelling a potential rebellion. There's like all these Hebrews, this, this huge people group here, and they keep multiplying, and we need to figure out a way to keep them, keep them oppressed, basically keep them busy. And so they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Isn't that so often what happens when one people group afflicts another? The elite group, right, the group that's winning is, uh, though I think, you know, 
in, enslaving somebody is dehumanizing to you too, as uh, Frederick Douglass actually argues in his, uh, I believe it's in his autobiography, argues that both the enslaver and the enslaved are dehumanized by, in a sense, by, by that action. But uh, the Egyptians are in dread of the people under them. The elite are in dread of the people under them. And, you know, you can see that in, man, the legacy of American slavery, right? Where there's just this extreme fear of slavery, of, of uprisings and of slaves kind of realizing, hey, like, there's actually a lot of us. We could do something about this if we want. Uh, and so slavery, the Egyptian solution here is just to keep them, keep them bowed down with heavy burdens. Also, just something I think is so cool is this. It says store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Ramses has apparent that that particular uh, store city, Ramses, has apparently been located historically and excavated. I, I think when it comes to archaeological stuff, like I said, a lot of stuff shifts. So I'd, I would avoid putting like a ton of stock, being like, "See this? I'm, I know this is. I know the Bible's true because of this particular archaeology." I think archaeology it can be a beautiful way of corroborating what we see in scripture, right? And like strengthening, but I also don't, wouldn't necessarily, I put all my, my eggs in that basket because then like, what if they're like, oh, actually we dated this again and it looks like the dating wise, it's like actually a, it's a later and earlier date. But something I think is so interesting. So I was like digging into that's just, wow. So cool that the Bible, here we're talking about Egypt, right? It's not talking about, here's something that happened in the land of tra-la-la. It's like, it's not these mythical, you know, it's not, it's not a story of just like a myth somebody made up. It's talking about real places, places that are still there, Egypt. If you want to go to Egypt, you can hop on a plane and go to Egypt and look at the pyramids and see the picture, see these sculptures of the pharaohs. Like, this is a real place, real people. The sands under the Hebrew feet are the sands of our world, not like, not some kind of mythic fairy tale, our world. It's still here today. And the sands that, you know, like the streets that Jesus trod, those are in Israel currently right now, right? That same land. So slavery is a way to uh, quell potential rebellion. Um, busy work. It's, it's funny, too, how in our own lives, too, there's an application that I think busy work, right? Just like the busyness of life. I feel like sometimes I just feel like, man, there's so much nonsense that I need to do. I need, like, just to, to just keep being a person, you know? When it just comes to, you think, like, okay, healthcare, uh, driver's license renewals, just like, okay, you gotta, if you have a house or somewhere you live, just feel like there's so much busy work, thinking like, oh, do you see the latest movie? Are you caught up on this? Are you caught up on the news? Are you doing this and that? There can be just so much busy work that keeps us from actually remembering, remembering who we are and who the Lord is, right? We can be enslaved by just the, the vicissitudes of life, right? Um, where we're just focusing solely on the present. So, the Egyptians here are keeping them, keeping them busy. Uh, so, ruthless, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And the language there, language there man, just, just ruthless, a lot of intensity. Of, something that's interesting here is those two elements, brick and mortar. The previous mention of those two elements is in Genesis 11 when it's talking about the building of the Tower of Babel. So I think, I think there's, there's a connection that can be made there. I think they're like build, working on these building projects and these kind of just, I guess, civic projects for the Egyptians. And in a sense, Egypt is doing the same thing that Babel right, was all about, uh, which is just it's a city of man, right? It's just focused on their own ends, focused on their own ends. And also, just I feel like all this, there's a truth in, in the sense of like, Scripture doesn't give us a picture in which humans are basically good and given enough time, we can build a utopia. And here we are, you know, um, three to 4,000 years later, right, from when, this, when this, this occurred. Have we had utopia yet? No. There's a lot of stuff to be thankful for. You know, we're in a building with air conditioning. You know, like I have had dental work done at some point. Um, so much to be grateful for, but it's not utopia. It's not utopia. And in fact, you look at the news and it's like a far cry from it, right? We have, there's like a sense of impending doom which hangs over the West, which hangs over the whole globe, right? Um, utopia is not, is not coming through people. But we're still longing for utopia. And I actually think that's one of the kind of undergirding narratives of the whole Bible. And, you know, even them longing for, for freedom, for the promised land. It's just like, we, there's a part of us which longs for this, which we know, oh man, this life is not supposed to be this. What, what's in front of us? This slavery, this drudgery, this pain. We know we're made for more, and yet all our efforts do not result in that. And in fact, our efforts result with what's happening here, oppression, right? The cruelty of people. Um, 
what the reason that, when, that God talked to Noah, uh, told Noah that there was going to be a flood, right? The earth is filled with violence. And that's human beings. The Bible is very honest about human beings. Um, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. One quick note is Shifra and Pua. What I, something I love here is that Pharaoh is never named in Exodus. We're never given the names of any of the pharaohs, but we are given the names of these midwives, you know? So this, like, these like, high and mighty kings, their names are they're, they're lost to history in a sense. They're, you know... Egyptologists are aware of names, and we could probably name, like, all oh, Ramses and King Tut. That's all I can think of off, offhand, right? That's, like, kind of your average person's aware of the awareness, and yet these women's names in a lowly position, in an, you know, in an oppressed people group, they are known to us because God sees them. The pharaohs, there's almost a sense of, I think, there's almost a sense of disposability to the pharaohs in the sense of, like, oh, you think you're a big deal? Like, you think you're so great because you're pharaoh? But, like, your name... Just like that, doesn't, it doesn't really, like, you're looking to solidify your name and create, like, an everlasting kind of monument to yourself, but that, that's not going to happen. But these people who sought the Lord are precious in God's sight. And, of course, Pharaoh has value in God's sight, but when, when Pharaoh turns his back on God, that's what happens. Um, just a, a general precept here is, like, man, when God's commands and man's commands conflict, like, when there's conflict between those, Choose God's commands. And that's, that's what these, these women do. We see that. That's something we see in Acts, in the book of Daniel. Just like when you're faced with a, a, an ethical quandary in which uh, a, the government or a boss or something says to do something that clearly conflicts with what God says to do, like, do what God says to do. Like, it, that the, uh, whatever government or whatever boss, whatever, that's, again, that's just, it's vapor, right? That's, that's only, that's, they're in control for a moment, and they're not really in control. Uh, there's here an echoes of Herod, right? Another situation in which a worldly king sought to kill a potential threat to his reign by ordering male children to be murdered. So we have that in Matthew 2. God blesses these women for their faithfulness. Says, uh, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So first Pharaoh, like, okay, the Egyptians are afraid of the Hebrews. So first um, Pharaoh enslaved the Hebrews, right? Just kept them busy with, with slave labor. Then he told the midwives to kill uh, the Hebrew sons. And now he tells everybody, all his people, to cast the Hebrew sons into the river. So there's like a command for genocide and infanticide, right? So I think, I think there's probably a sense of rising desperation here, right? Like, okay, uh, I kept them busy with slave labor, but they're still having a lot of kids. Their numbers are multiplying. Uh, tell the midwives, kill the sons, okay? Okay, the midwives aren't doing that. And like, there's a sense of like, there's almost a sense of like uh, impotence to the, this pharaoh's like, okay, he's the king of the land, but like, his commands are not, not working. Then he tells everybody to kill, uh, kill Hebrew sons, throw them into the river. And we will see that Moses is going to be cast into the river, um, but that the waters of destruction, the waters which should bring about death, actually bring about deliverance. And those selfsame waters later are going to be uh, used as judgment against Egypt in a plague. And interestingly enough, Pharaoh's own household is going to be used by God in thwarting Pharaoh's command. So Exodus 2, now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. I just want to pause there and remember the conception in the Bible. There's oftentimes a phrase that the Lord opened the womb. That conception is a gift. We kind of take conception as, honestly, we view conception as, I mean, we have, we're in a very strange culture where at the same time, conception is something many couples long for, and we do like IVF if you can't conceive, and there's a sense of like, oh, it's like there's the heaviness to like not being able to conceive, but at the same time, we also have like, oh, like conception's actually a problem that we need to figure out a way to stop, right? And uh, I mean, Planned Parenthood, there's, no, there's not a sense of conception being a blessing there, unless I guess like you, you kind of like, oh, actually, 
uh, no, we actually want the kid. If you say that really quick, oh, okay, conception's a blessing. We have this twisted relationship in our culture in the West with, I think, with our own bodies, right? But with what in the Bible is spoken of as an unalloyed blessing. Conception is a blessing. A child is a blessing. The fecundity, the fert- I keep saying that word, I just like saying it, fecundity. But the fr- and then somebody's going to tell me later I'm mispronouncing it. Uh, but fertility, right, is actually a blessing. It's a good thing. God think- said right at the start of Genesis v- that the earth bringing forth all these things was good, that human beings multiplying, that was a blessing, right? And that God looked at his creation and said, very good. So this is a good thing. And even I think there's an echo there where the woman conceived, uh, when she said, when she saw that he was a fine child, there's a sense of like, I think there's an echo there of God seeing his creation and declaring that it was good, seeing that it was good. In Acts, uh, Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, he actually retells this story. Um, he retells much of the story, and he, as he's doing so, he, said, he like gives us sometimes a few details we haven't heard before, which we'll, I'll drop in here, uh, which aren't in Exodus per se, but he says that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. So, uh, when she could hide him no longer, she took him for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and, bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So that, that detail there, bitumen and pitch, is actually very telling. Because right here, can you think of another time in Scripture when God brought about the preservation of a people through a vehicle upon water that was actually sealed with pitch? So sealed with pitch. So there's, there's clearly something happening here, like, okay, pitch is part of what's going on here. God specifically told Moses to make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Pitch is like tar, I believe. It's like an appropriate, uh, appropriate uh, synonym. So the ark here in Noah's flood goes through these waters of judgment. Moses in the, goes through the Nile, which should be a, a source of death for him, but in fact, it's actually a source of life. Um, and later, the, that same Nile is going to display God's judgment, right? Remember, the water is turned to blood. And water is going to play an important role later because there's a parting of the Red Sea in which the waters through which God's people travel then turn into waters of judgment for Pharaoh and his army. And if you think, if you're just like, ah, I don't, that's, that's an interesting analogy, but like, I'm not sure if I totally buy it about the ark, that, the analogy between the basket and the ark, but actually the word there that's used for basket is the same word that's used for ark, and that's the only time, I believe in all of Scripture, certainly in, I believe it's in the Pentateuch, but I think it's in all of Scripture, the same words are used for ark and Moses' basket there. So I think that's pretty telling. Uh, let's see. Uh, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call uh, you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. I'm going to pause right there. Uh, The sister, I assume that's Miriam, who we're going to meet later in the narrative, unless Moses had another, there's another sister Moses had that's not mentioned, but uh, I assume, and I think traditionally it's held, that was Miriam. It's interesting here, the the Pharaoh's daughter a Gentile woman, is one here in Scripture of a long line of Gentile women whose sympathy for the Israelites and their fear of God um, actually provides a means of salvation. There's Rahab when uh, Joshua uh, and God's people are entering, uh, are spying out Jericho. She uh, shows, she like actually helps out the Israelites. There's Ruth in the book of Ruth, and this is a free ad for the Ruth study on Tuesday mornings. Um, and Gentile women actually providing for the New Testament church when the church, when the gospel is starting to spread among Gentiles. So there's a long line of Gentile women uh, often defying, like, I think, well, Rahab, like defying the the powers of their particular, uh, their particular context in order to be, help God's people and to be faithful to God ultimately. Uh, So when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. 
So Moses' name, I don't want to like get too sidetracked with the etymology of it, um, but uh, here we see scripture explicitly, explicitly connects it to drawing out of the water, which would co- uh, correspond with the Hebrew word Moshe, to draw out. But, now this is a little speculative, but you might think, okay, would the Egyptians be like weirded out if it's like, well, why does is, why is your kid have a Hebrew name? But apparently there's an Egyptian word uh, that, that Moses sounds kind of like uh, an Egyptian word, possibly at least, some scholars are saying, for son or born one. So if that's true, there's like an interesting duality here. There's an Egyptian name that they would understand, oh, that's like a son, but also it's actually similar to the Hebrew name for draw out. Moses was drawn out of the Nile, and he is the means by which God would draw out his people. And then before we go any farther, I think it is so helpful to erase come up from our minds all these kind of narrative elements we have from like Prince of Egypt and the Ten Commandments, right? And just all this kind of stuff we've absorbed uh, culturally that is speculative, right? Uh, for instance, that Moses was raised as Pharaoh's brother and that the Pharaoh he would later defy, that they were brothers and they were once close, um, or that Moses didn't, didn't know who he was. He, didn't, he like had a shocking discovery that he was Hebrew. I mean, basically, the, the narrative doesn't say. What we're about to see is like we're about to... Um, we're about to jump forward. It doesn't tell us about him, like, growing up, what that was like. I mean, the elements we can think of in those films that, like, maybe they happened. Maybe some of those things happened as, as so. Maybe not. I don't know. But I think it's really important when you're looking at Scripture, just strip away kind of the cultural stuff, even stuff within the church. Like, just looking at Scripture, like, it's very helpful to strip away kind of all this, the additives on top and just kind of brush that stuff away be like, what does the text actually say? Because it's always a bummer when people get tripped up over things. It's like, oh, the, the Bible doesn't even say that. You don't even need to, like, to, to wrestle with that because the, the Bible doesn't say that. You don't need to get... Or when people kind of, like, quote things like, uh, uh, God helps those who help themselves. Like, isn't that somewhere in the Bible? Like, no, no, it's not. Um, but here we have Moses. There's a gap in his life. Um, and... We do have a little bit of a plug of the gap before what we're about to go to because we're told in Acts, Stephen says, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So that's interesting. And we're also told that when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So we're told that in Acts 7 and that's going to inform what we're going to read right now. So one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Uh, the Hebrew there is one of his brothers, right? Um, so, uh, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your com- companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So that, that incident, right? Moses sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he kills the Egyptian. His, uh, that act is further clarified a little bit in Acts 7. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So that's an interesting thing to sit, sit, sit with and kind of ponder. I wonder what that means. Did, did Moses view this act as like, the act of, uh, it seems like he viewed this act of some sort of like salvific or like redemptive act in some sense, right? Uh, but this was before we're told that God actually calls him from the burning bush. It's also interesting that here we have this like Egyptian uh, is hidden in the sand. I just think it's just interesting to think of like Egyptians uh, just what, you, what do you think of when you think of Egypt now? We just think of like these empires buried by sand, right? And just so interesting, all the power here, ultimately just like impotent, impotent and end up being buried in the sa- sand, kind of like a coffin, kind of like a dead body, right? As, as empires do, they end up in ruins. Um, and yet, these people, these oppressed people, there's like billions of people all over the world today who would at least, who would claim allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and J- Jacob. And that, that is amazing. One of the Hebrews here, he says, who made you a ruler and judge over us? A prince and judge over us. And also, well, God is going to actually. God is explicitly going to call Moses to do so. And it's not going to be of Moses' own volition. 
And again, some of these things that we are, where we're, you know, where it's just like, oh, what, what did Moses mean by his act of killing the Egyptian? Like, it's speculation. I don't really know, but it's interesting to, to sit on. We are told here that when Moses flees, we're told in Hebrews, we're told that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach, the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And think, Moses, I don't know if it was like an open secret that he was a Hebrew. I, I don't really know what, what that was like. Do, we're not told. But there is a sense in which he, and even this verse casts light on it, I think that he was able to, like, he could have lived high and mighty in Egypt. He was certainly, he was, he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, right? He was in the Egyptian royalty, right? He was in the, the elite in any case, and I am sure that he had access to a multitude of worldly pleasure, right? Of power, of any number of things he could have enjoyed, but instead, we're told here that he had this, there's a draw to his people, right? He sees the oppression that's happening, and we're told that in the end, he chooses to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, and there's something so, so powerful to that, so powerful that, to that. Um, also, I wonder if there's something, I wonder if it's reading too much to think of something there about somebody who was royal, right, who's royal, who has access to great wealth, but intentionally chooses to empathize and to, to be one with downtrodden people, right? And that's, that's who Jesus is. He has access to immense power, right? He's a royal son, and yet he chooses to be mistreated with us on earth in order that he might live. Um, so, Verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, we're at the well now, uh, and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When it says priest of Midian there, I'm not entirely sure what it means. This guy's going to end up being Moses' uh, father-in-law. I don't really, priest of Midian, I mean, reading it's like, okay, is he, is he a priest of the true God? Was he a priest of, like, perhaps a pagan God, and then he turns to the true God? I don't know. We're not told. Um, but uh, we're told later that his name means friend. He has a name which apparently means friend of God. So perhaps he is indeed a priest of the true God. But he's, his seven daughters are at this well, and the well is a recurring biblical scene, right? Abraham's servant met Isaac's wife. At a well, Jacob met Rebecca and Leah at a well. Uh, one day, Jesus would meet the Samaritan woman at a well. And this is like a recurring, uh, some people call it, it's, uh, scholars call it a type scene. It's this like recurring scene. scene. And if you're kind of familiar, familiar with how that works in Genesis, you might be expecting, oh, I think Moses might meet his wife here. And in, uh, the shepherds, again, the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. I think it's interesting there that you see Moses there. Um, defending harassed women. He's clearly a man who cares about justice, about the right thing, and that's an aspect of a godly leader, right? Caring for the oppressed. We see that again and again through Scripture. Uh, when they came home to their father, Reuel, uh, that's the name that means, apparently, friend of God, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Something of note here is that they're drawing water at the well, and there's a link there with Moses' name, right? Um, and then here we have Zipporah, which uh, her name, I believe, means bird, which I really, I just think that's a lovely name, bird. Uh, she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Or I believe in the King James, that's I have been a stranger in a strange land. So, from, okay, so Moses is settling down there, but I think it's, uh, there is a sense in which him saying that I'm a stranger in a strange land, there's a sense in which, okay, he's not, he's here, but this isn't his home, and he knows it. Uh, and then there's like a really interesting passage. So we've been kind of like given, we started with like a zoomed out view of Egypt, what happened in Egypt over a course of hundreds of years. Um, then we're, we've zoomed into Moses 
seen his life. And then we're about to zoom out again to kind of get our bearings, as it were, historically setting up the narrative. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That word groaning, the groaning they were in, they're, they're enduring, that word groaning is actually used elsewhere in Ezekiel as the same word groaning of someone with two broken arms. And it's actually a, a pharaoh who it's talking about in that context, so that's kind of a wild connection. But the groaning of someone, so just the pain, the just like the agony of it, you know? Uh, and we have here this God. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He is the God who sees. And actually, Hagar, if you recall, in the story of Abraham and, and uh, Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, Hagar said, you are the God who sees, because God saw her pain, her situation. She was vulnerable in an oppressed state, and here the Israelites are vulnerable in an oppressed state. He's a God who sees, and he hears, and he remembers, and he acts. He acts. Emmanuel, one of the names of Jesus, is God with us. Jesus knows, and maybe perhaps even just listen to this, you're like, oh, I, I, you just need to hear that he sees. He sees you right now. And when you're in the midst of things, you can't even, like, put words to it, just to what you're going through, through the pain, through the complications, perhaps, of the suffering. He sees, he knows, and God knew. All right, so... Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Just a, a little note here, Jethro. So a few verses earlier, we were told his name was Reuel. And we've actually seen, we, we do see in the Bible people referred to mul by multiple names. And so I, I definitely encourage you, if you see that kind of thing, multiple names, don't be thrown off. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read any Russian novels, but Russian novels, they have like three names and it's so confusing and like, I remember just like one of the one of the Russian, the real big boys reading that and like having to flip back and being like, oh man, like who are we talking about at this point? Uh, so again, that's not the Bible being contradictory or inconsistent. And also it'd be outrageous to assume that the writer forgot the name he wrote a few verses earlier. That would be, that'd be crazy. So here we have just like, okay, multiple names is going on. Um, you know, perhaps it's a, the equivalent of, like, think of it even the equivalent, perhaps, of a surname, the way we have surnames. Um, so Jethro, the priest of Midian, so Moses is taking care of a flock, taking care of a flock, uh, a shepherding position, which I think is interesting to note. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And I just want to pause there. I, it wasn't until just reading this that it uh, hit me, just preparing for that, this in the last few weeks, that Moses doesn't immediately, he doesn't see the burning bush, and it doesn't say, appear to be like, oh, it, it's God, or something like, you know, he actually is just like, I will turn aside to see this great sight, uh, why the bush is not burned. Just like, it's just interesting. He wasn't drawn because of a theophany per se, but more just like, oh, that's wild. Like, that's an amazing sight and goes to see. Which to me also, like, there's a sweetness even the way that if you, if you think of people who were perhaps drawn to explore Jesus, drawn to the Bible, drawn to know the Lord through just an initial curiosity, uh, I think of a, this is kind of a tangent, but I think of a buddy who, uh, a guy I knew, who he was just super into zombies, and he had heard that there were like, people were resurrected in the, in the Bible after Jesus' death, uh, and he was just like, he just got interested in that, and lo and behold, read the Bible and became a Christian, you know, convinced of its reality and became a Christian, and just the way that God is so gracious to draw us in so many ways, and it's interesting too, the way something which, an act, which at the start of it doesn't appear particularly like, incandescent. You're like, oh, this doesn't seem supernatural. Ends up being, oh, that was actually the path by which I was led to meet the living God. Um, and so here Moses, he turns aside to see this bush. Uh, fire is a sign of God's presence here, and later we'll see God is actually leading Israel through a pillar of fire. Uh, there's also instances of God's fire, like fire from heaven consuming sacrifices, and eventually Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit is, is poured out. 
on God's people, and they, there's like flames of fire, tongues as of fire over their heads. So fire is a, a picture we see oftentimes uh, signifying the Lord, pointing to the Lord. God says, Moses, Moses, a God who knows people by name, not just like, you know, not a removed deity who's just like a uh, human, you know, or like, hey, you there. It's like Moses. God has known Moses from his birth, from before he was born, just as he does each of us, we're told. Um, so he calls Moses, and Moses says, here I am, which is the same response as Abraham. Abraham says that twice. Jacob says that twice. Isaiah, uh, uh, Ananias in Acts, um, the Ananias who, who helps Paul. Uh, but here I am is his response. And what is he told there? Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses hiding his face. Moses being told to take off his shoes, for he's in the presence of God. There's just a sense, like, I feel like, even reading this, like a hushed awe, a sense of holiness, right? God uh, is, there's, God is holy, right? He is, there's a power and a purity, and for lack of a better word, I'll just say an otherness, right? Compared to our soiled world, compared to our fallen state, right? And many times when the servants of God meet God, there's like just like an abject fear or just like, you know, uh, Isaiah's just like, oh Lord, I'm, I belong to a people of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the Lord actually, there's a coal from a fire that purifies his lips. God, like there's a, a reverent fear before God. It's not a cringing fear like a lackey fleeing before like a, and like a, a crazy boss, right? But it's the fear of like, you are God and I am not. You are holy and I know the unholiness that dwells in me. And that's, that's something that uh, we can forget, right? We can kind of like focus strictly on like the, the, the fact that Jesus re reveals himself as friend, and he does, and that is good news. But he is also, he is a holy friend. And there's a sense of like, we are able to approach him because Jesus has given us his holiness. And there's a celebration in that. Again, not a cringing fear, but a sense of like God, right? Um, even just to think of the, the difference between meeting a meeting like a king or a president, right? You can like, oh, I'll get, I'll get nervous, I'll get shaky, oh, I'm meeting the president or, you know, a king or whatever. But this is God, the king of the universe, a king like beyond the physical world, beyond like infinite power. I just think that is, that is who Moses is, is meeting. And I just think that, that the numinous, the holiness of God is something for us to, for, to ponder and which makes his kindness and his care all the sweeter because this is not God who's like abstract and just like kind of like, in, oh sorry, in the, in the realm, like the platonic realm of forms. This is a God who entered into history in a specific concrete way, in a covenant way. And we see here that he says he is the God of your father. He's talking to Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that is a, as a, as a threefold or fourfold um, kind of uh, name, title, you could almost think of it, that God gives himself again and again, emphasizing he's a God who's been interacting with these people, these specific people in a specific time of history. And this is going to be emphasized uh, multiple times in this chapter, actually. God is a God who keeps his promises, and he's keeping his promises to the patriarchs. Uh, Jesus actually uh, quotes this passage in, in Mark 12, where he says that uh, how God said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And that's, in, that's interesting to even just read that whole passage, Mark 12. But here we have Moses hiding his, his, his face in fear, right? And then the Lord says, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, my people, he says, right? Who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Just pausing there. Think even of the fact that God is not ashamed to care for and to, to identify 
with people who are losers in a sense of like, if you think of world history, like from a world history perspective, those are the people we'd say, oh, they're the looters, losers, right? Those are not the people at the top of the hierarchy. They are not the people calling the shops. They're not the people who are like designing the architecture of the incredible architecture of Egypt, though they are the people, it seems like, who are actually building the architecture, right? But these are not the people at the top. These are the people at the bottom. And God, you also think of like, man, you, if you hear of like the Greek pantheon, right, their gods or various pagan gods, right, they're gods of power. They're gods of like the winners, right? They're gods who like validate like, hey, I conquered this land in the name of my, my God. And I, you know, like there's a sense of honestly, like a, the pagan gods, there's a sense of being glutted by blood and wanting and like honored by just power and on the side of the winners. And God here, the real God of the universe, is a God who cares for the downtrodden, who again and again identifies as a God who like cares for the orphan, the widow, right, the fatherless. He is a good and kind God. Um, and in uh, Genesis 15, God specifically told Abraham that his, his people, his, his uh, descendants would come back here, meaning Canaan, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And now here, God is telling, saying it's time to go to the, Canaanite, the land of the, the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So he is going to be going to that place. So I guess their, their, their iniquity, their sin, that time is complete. And there's a mystery to God, the way he works in terms of history. Scripture talks about specific times and seasons being apportioned by God to particular people, groups, and nations. And so there's a sense that these people were here indulging in like, horrifying sins, you know, like, uh, I believe those are the people who are like, there's like child sacrifice, that kind of stuff going on, and God has said, okay, there's a time for that, you're, there's, I'm going to give you time, like, a time in which I'm holding back, but then there's going to be a time when God says no more, and there's a sense of judgment, right, and purification, which is going to happen, and God is actually going to give this, this uh, land to his people. It's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. There's a sense of richness and verdance and beautiful uh, beauty to it. And I think that fertility should trigger in our minds the promise of Eden, right? And again, what I was talking about kind of earlier, like the sense of utopia that people are longing for, um, but utopia which would not be utopia were it not for the Lord. Uh, and that utopia does, they are going to be given the land, but ultimately the, the true, full, uh, the tr real promised land the fulfillment of all our deepest hopes and dreams, that comes actually in, in Revelation. That's something that Jesus welcomes all who put faith in him to experience, right? In the new heavens and the new earth. So Moses replies to God, and I just think it's worth pausing and thinking, wow, Moses gets to reply to God, that he, God is a God who doesn't just like give commands and just like we start to say something, it's like, oh, nope, silence, end of story. God actually deigns to like have conversation with us. We're told that God, like Moses was somebody who was like a friend of God, talking to God as a man talks with his friend. So here, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Uh, beautiful line, but I will be with you. God is going to be with him. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And this is a very, this is an, an incredible portion of scripture we're about to come up, up on. I feel like it is one of those things which you could s just ponder and just sit on and meditate on for the rest of your life and never like fully uh, get out all that there is to be, to be gotten from it. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he, said to this and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, and that's probably in all caps in your Bible. I'll explain that in a minute, but take notice of that. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So I'm going to pause right there. So I am who I am. And then after that, it says, say, I am has sent me to you. And then Lord in all caps. So there, that I am who I am is a phrase uh, that is, when you can, you can kind of deep dive on this. So I'll try to give kind of a flyover on it, but you can dive very deep on this. And I think there's great profundity to it. Um, 
but uh, the, the occurrences I have of I am there, they all represent forms of the Hebrew verb that means to be, haya, okay? And they're related, they're sound, like they're similar to what God says his name is, the Lord there. And what the Lord is there, it's actually, it's what uh, people call the tetragrammaton, tetra as in four. So there's actually four Hebrew uh, consonants there. Y-H-W-H, which scholars generally agree now is supposed to be pronounced Yahweh, okay? But it seems like they don't actually know for sure, for sure, but that is just the generally, and there's reasons, like digging into it, there's, there's reasons to, to hold to that, and I think that makes a lot of sense. But Yahweh, right? The Lord. And then that, that name has links to, or like appear, it sounds very similar to the Hebrew for to be, right? I am who I am. And some people will say you should, it could be translated, I will be who I will be. But in any case, what I think you can take, I think it's worth like really just sitting on for a long time. But I think things you can take from that, I am who I am. There's a sense of God, his like self-sufficiency, his self-existence. He is the one, you know, we can all say, I am um, Pip. I have not always been, right? Like I have not always existed, right? I'm the product of my parents who are the product of their parents, on and on and on, all the way back to Adam, right? Who's the product God, God created. But God is one who, the, he is the uncreated one, self-sufficient. There's a sense of his, his being as the creator and, uh, and sustainer of all that exists. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. So I think there's just this, this profound nature of God, the God of the universe, not one of the little G gods that people make up, right? Not um, just like, oh, I'm just like a, a lesser spiritual being. This is the spiritual being, the uncreated creator. I am who I am. And he says, I am has sent me to you. And of great interest is the times that Jesus actually says, I am. And at one point, actually, that like, that it's explicitly, and maybe at several points, I, uh, but Jesus says, I am, and his hearers recognize that he is making a clear claim to deity, and they pick up stones to stone him, right? Um, so Jesus, I mean, if you just look at, you know, just, just digging into the Gospels, look for that I am, and it is there in very powerful ways. If somebody says Jesus didn't claim to be God, even just this alone is something you can look at and be like, uh, if he, being a, a, right, right, a good Hebrew, he would know what he's saying when he says I am, and he would not use that kind of terminology if he was not, in fact, God, but he does because he is God. Um, so I am, profound, something to sit on, but the Lord, why doesn't it say Yahweh there? Anytime you see all caps, the Lord, kind of like the small all caps in a Bible, it is actually the name of God, Yahweh. And the reason not is apparently uh, that the name, there was like, as scribes and uh, Jewish folks way back in the day had this like a sense of reverence, they would avoid pronouncing God's name, and actually came to a point where they wouldn't necessarily even like, instead of God, they would interpose, they would, uh, instead of saying the name of God there, they would interpose, I believe it was uh, Adonai, which is Lord. Uh, but in any case, basically, the name had, and actually, you know, let me, before I stumble all over myself, let me just say it right here, because you can actually see it. At the start of most Bibles, you will have something which is explaining why it doesn't actually say, why there's all caps, um, Lord. And I will read it right now, if I can find it in time. But I think there's something, it's interesting because you kind of realize that like, God revealed himself with a personal name. And a personal name, like, says something about God, like, he is willing to, like, let us know him on that level and gave us, in fact, a name to call him this, this, this personal revelation. Because there's, like, kind of more general, like, a general, broader name for God that's used in Scripture, and there's this, this special personal name. So, uh, the exact pronunciation of Yahweh is uncertain because the Jewish people consider the personal name of God to be so holy that it should never be spoken aloud. Instead of reading the word Yahweh, they would normally read the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. And that is why uh, in the ES, among modern English translations, they usually render the personal name of God, Yahweh, with the word Lord, printed all caps. So, just something of note, uh, when you're re reading through scripture and see that, that's actually God's personal name. So, again, he is describing himself as a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, he sees what has been done to them in Egypt, and he's promised to bring them out. So he's basically re recapitulating to, uh, to Moses, reinforcing, this is what you're supposed to say to the elders of Egypt. 
Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, there's that name, right? The God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let, them, let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. So we have repetition here. And repetition in the Bible is not like a scribal error, like, oh, they weren't paying attention. They just said it twice. It's not like, uh, it's not, it, it has purpose. It's not a purposeless repetition. Um, when you see that kind of thing in a text, don't let the kind of modern, like, oh, this seems like weird writing. Why would they repeat it so much? But it's actually emphatic, right? It's telling us something, uh, drumming it into our minds, drumming it into our memory. And I think it's interesting here that God has, his initial request is three days, for them to go a three days journey, right, to sacrifice to him. And Pharaoh is clearly resistant to even just like an initial request. So I think it's interesting that God intentionally gives like initial lesser, it seems like to me, this initial lesser request. And it's clear that Pharaoh's not even going to consent to that. And God has the right to like, you know, to ask, tell Pharaoh that whatever he wants, right? But he starts with that initial request to them. Israel is God's son. So in a sense, it's like the Pharaoh has kidnapped God's son. And Pharaoh's saying like, hey, give me my son back. And there's almost like an initial lesser request. And then it's going to be, hey, no, this, this is my son. Uh, and God is going to strike Egypt with wonders so that they may know that he is God. This, it's interesting, this point here, the, what it closes on this chapter about plundering the Egyptians. I think of this as a bloodless plunder, right? It's like the booty of a war. But instead of it being a war where the, it's like the Egyptians are, uh, the Hebrews are going to just turn and kill, kill the Egyptians around them and take, the, take their stuff, God is actually fighting on their behalf and giving his people this. And you could also think of it as in a sense of restitution for like, hey, we've been like laboring for you for free for 400 years. You've taken advantage of us. And the Egyptians, as like a sign, a further sign of God's miraculous deliverance, are going to just give them stuff this stuff. And it actually says, I believe at one point, where there's just like, God has given, um, there's actually Egyptians look, some of them, there's like a, a sense of like a sympathy, like a, for, for the, uh, the Israelites here. So it's astonishing, but the God is the God of astonishing deliverances. And that's something, not just that we see here, right, but all throughout scripture. And I think it's, it's worth thinking about, even as I'm just about to close in prayer, but even as you go about the rest of your, rest of your evening, think about like, this God who says he sees, he saw this thousands of years ago. He saw the oppression of his people, and he was not ashamed to be called their God and to call them his, his people. And that's the same for you. Whatever is weighing on you, whatever you feel like is like kind of like a taskmaster whipping you, whether it's even just a sense of shame, um, whether it's just the, the way just like life in this world can get you down, the Lord sees. The Lord sees, and he cares, and he is a redeemer. So I'm going to pray right now. Lord, I just want to thank you for all these people here, Lord. And I'm just reminded that your spirit is what animates this, this, this text as we read, Lord. Your spirit breathed out this word, and you also want to bring it to bear in our hearts. So we just pray that you would bring it to bear the ways you want, even as it's just kind of sitting there, and perhaps over the week even, may things just like pop up, things which um, tell us something about you and your heart for us. And Lord, I just thank you that scripture is ultimately, it's, it's about it's not about us. It's about your goodness. It's about who you are and that you welcome us into that um, and that you have good plans for us. So we just thank you for the fact that you are the God who sees, the God who cares, the God who acts, the God who interacts with us. And Lord, there's a healthy fear for us. I pray that we would have a healthy fear of you, but not an unhealthy fear, Lord, because you invite us in to be called friend, to be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.